Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 395. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. I'll tell you what's coming today, show. First up, we have Science News with the ever, ever popular Mr. JJ Campanella. Then we, the main fiction we have is Dominee by Yerk Davison. That is all coming in today, sure. Like I say, I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. And don't forget, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology, who are now able to supply hosted exchange service for solicitors and legal firms in the UK who need to use that criminal justice secure email. Big thank you to Clive and Diane. Got a few little things to kind of ponder, throw out there before we kind of, you know, get to the, the meat of the matter. First on one is, as you know, we're running a little campaign for Tales to Terrify. It's kind of, it's bouncing along the ground there and it needs to stand on its own two feet. I mentioned it last week. And if you like what we do, do you know what I mean? If you like the District of Wonders, if you like the kind of, you know, the far-fetched fables, especially Tales to Terrify at this moment. We have a date where lights possibly could get switched off. That big switch could get flicked. I don't, oh man, there's no way on God's green earth I want that to happen. Do you know? But we kind of just keep on kind of, do you know what I mean? Using my bank account and using my bloody me house funds for it. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, you know, do the right thing. You know, we've been going a few years there now. If you've listened for a few years and you've, you know, a monthly donation, £2.50, £2.50, man, please. The other one is, and it's actually, you know, part of it. And, you know, bear, 
bear with me there, because and I'm not trying to kind of just you know grab, grab, grab that money. That's not you know what I mean. In the kind of the world where I would I like to kind of live is science fiction all the time. Do you know what I mean? I would give my right buttock. Do you know what I mean? If I could kind of, you know, you've got to grab someone's attention. You know, I honestly would give my right backside. If I could work in science fiction, you know, do this as a kind of day job. Do you know what I mean? This would just be fantastic. And it's funny, there's, you know what I mean? It's like, there's a light at the, not a light at the end of the tunnel for kind of doing this day job, but, you know, I'm 49. Do you know what I mean? There's a possibility where... I can go at 55. Do you know what I mean? This is I'm kind of thinking. Do you know, if, yeah, then that's the kind of earliest, I think, in the waterboard, you can kind of jump ship and, you know, take your, take your pension, as I say. How can I talk about pensions, man? I'm just a kid. But, you know what I mean? You kind of stay at 65. Do you know what I mean? But kind of jumping early and going at 55 and having, you know, Tales of Terrify Starships over being my income. Do you know what I mean? That's a kind of, that's a light that's shining there. And, could, you know, and there's no kind of income, you know what I mean? It's all just goodwill. Do you know what I mean? That's all I'm kind of floating on here, goodwill. But a couple of days ago, I got an email from a gentleman that just says, Tony, you know, just to help out Tales to Terrify, he says, I'll, I'll give you some money if you want to read a couple of stories for us and just give us a kind of bit of feedback on it. And I was like, oh, I could do that. You know what I mean? I kind of, I certainly do that. You know, I've been bloody reading short stories and saying no to short stories and kind of listen to some <laughs> idiot short stories in my time. So I know what kind of, what ticks in a short story and kind of what works and what I like and what, you know, I guess I've got a good idea what other people like there now. Do you know what I mean? It's, you know, it's, it's just the, the kind of nature of the beast. So I was thinking, I wonder if that is a, like a possibility. I kind of, Read some stories and, you know, for a fee, give you a kind of feedback and, and stuff like that. You know, and like I say, I'm just dipping in. Someone's asked us to do it. And I thought, oh, I'll, I'll give that a go. I'll see how it is. And what I'm going to do is do it in audio. Do you know what I mean? That's kind of my thing. So I'll kind of listen to this thing in audio as well. I always listen to any kind of document I get. You know, I listen to it in audio anyways. I'm kind of so tuned now to kind of the Google text speech and, you know, kind of Amazon's whisper sing voice thing that I don't need you know what I mean the kind of when a, a story I get a story or I have to listen to anything you know it, it goes through that system and then I'll record it in audio as well because you know for, that's the way I can express myself do you know what I mean kind of putting it down on in in audio just kind of free you know kind of free one that's how I do the kind of if you go on the kind of YouTube videos I'm, I'm kind of doing them over there and you know, there's, there's certain things you've got to get right. You know what I mean? Fundamentally, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping, you know, if someone comes and sends us a little story there, you've got your grammar and your kind of punctuation right. And I'm not going to even gonna go there unless it's tripping us up like kind of left, right and centre. But if there's, there's certain kind of fundamental things for me, you know what I mean? Carrot has got to be in there. Do you know what I mean? Especially like a story that you want to play on, say, a show, or you want to get it published in a magazine. Carrot has, you know, the, the story, the kind of pace of the story the overall feel of it, do you know what I mean? If it's going to just, might be all kind of clinically perfect, do you know what I mean? But if you kind of, you come away and it just doesn't kind of, doesn't kind of get you in your heart, do you know what I mean? Kind of put that lump in your throat, you know, that's that's what I kind of, so I'm just 
putting this thing out, if you know, I'm certainly not kind of going to get a website just yet. <laughs> Two days, I'll be on the phone to Josh. Get it up, man. So drop us an email, starshipsover at gmail.com, starshipsover at gmail.com. And we'll just, I'll, I'll have a chat with you, see what you think. Another little kind of mention is going to take a holiday. Yes, this is the last one. We're going to have two weeks off. I know at this moment, Jeremy's in there in America. Do you know what I mean? Jeremy's down in Australia normally. He's in America. Now, I'm not too sure how long Jeremy's there for. He's, he's got the shows kind of all kind of planned and everything like that. But I'm now away. We're going to go to Chester for a few days. I think there's a week there and then a week in Windermere in the cottage as well. So... I could, yes, I could kind of get it all kind of recorded, pre-recorded and have them coming up. But when, just when Jeremy's out there, if, if something kind of, you know, if something went wrong, I'm not saying went wrong, but if let's say one of the, M, the kind of stories wasn't in MP3 format and stuff, it just, it's all best time to kind of have a break there now. So we come back, looking at my calendar there now, we come back on, let's just have a look, the 5th of August. I think that's right, the 5th of August. So the 22nd, next week, and the 29th, I will be away. Gives you a little bit of break, gives you time to catch up, and gives you time to think about, you know, if you've got that story kind of just tucked away, send it over. Do you know what I mean? We'll see how it goes. Or if you want to kind of support, you know, and it gives you time to kind of think, ah, right, go on, then they're doing all right. Hells, bells, I'll ask. Give me a cup of, cup of <laughs> cappuccino. So there's my little things out of the way there. And like I say, you know, have a think about them. See what you, you know, let us know. That would be fantastic. So we'll get straight in then with JJ Campanella, Science News, Jim. Greetings and galactic stridulations, my colossally morphometric listeners. And welcome to this July 2015 Science News Update. I'm the host for this platonically nefarious science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. And so yet another anniversary is upon us. I've now been doing this podcast feature for seven glorious years, which is also the age of my son, so I can always track how long I've been at this news thing by simply referring to him. So we are at three quarters of the way to the 10-year mark. We shall see how much farther we have to go. I swear there are some stories that I have been returning to again and again over the span of seven years, like last month in the discussion of xenoestrogens and plastics. Even after seven years, the U.S. government has still not banned BPA or its relatives. Memory and memory erasure has come up again and again. Exoplanets are a perennial favorite as well. I don't know if there are very many of you out there that have actually been listening to this nonsense for seven years, except possibly Tony Smith. But if you have been, then I salute you. Thank you for the loyalty. For those of you new to this hoary podcast, and that's hoary meaning old kitties, not the other one, you newbies are in for a treat. First, several listeners emailed me in sympathy for my sleep apnea, and that was very nice of you. Thanks very much for your kind thoughts. A couple of you, namely Kathleen M. Hansen, and Ramona Soroyan decided to ask me a question in connection with snoring and sleep apnea and evolution. Namely, how in the heck did humans evolve snoring anyway? Wouldn't snoring be a bad thing and call down every predator in the area while you were sleeping and most vulnerable? And also, my cat slash dog slash ferret doesn't snore. Why do humans? 
Okay, first off, you may be making a mistake by assuming that humans started snoring when we were still living in the woods. It's possible that we didn't actually evolve that maladaptation until after we were snug behind walls where we would be safe to relax. So to answer the question, you would actually need to know when snoring actually evolved. Was it early in in human evolution or later in human evolution? Another possibility is that you're simply mistaken and that snoring isn't an adaptation at all. It's often a bad idea to be thinking about evolution from a purely uh, adaptionist perspective, since a great deal of evolution is thought to be non-adaptive. In other words, many things have evolved that have no evolutionary advantage at all, or disadvantage for that matter. Snoring probably did not evolve as an adaptation. It's more likely a consequence of our anatomy and physiology. One of my colleagues suggested it may be a consequence of human vocal cords. Another jokingly suggested that Neanderthals may have snored worse than humans and earlier in their evolution and may have doomed themselves because of that. Now, if we assume that snoring is an adaptation, then what advantage may it bring? Will it bring any at all? After a bit of thought, I decided, yeah, it may have. Snoring would give away your position in the woods, certainly in the forest, but at the same time, it could scare away a predator looking for an easy meal. I have certainly been told that my snoring scares our cat out of the room, so how hard is it to believe that snoring 100,000 years ago was employed to scare away lions and tigers and bears? We snore because it warns other animals not to mess with us, maybe. If you come into a cave and there's a deep rumbling snore coming from an interior, you're probably less likely to enter that cave. I mean, entering is kind of risky. Why do it? And whatever animal is in there could be woken up. So if you hear a loud snoring, the result could be fatal if you enter that dark cave. So snoring could have been positively selected. And by the way, yeah, cats and dogs don't really snore very much, except when they're old. Uh, I had a 23-year-old cat who you could certainly hear snoring. That's a lot what she sounded like. Anyway, but there are mammals that are known to snore, and um, that includes horses and mice, apparently. So snoring might be older than humans. It's quite possible. So let's get back to our first official story of the night, which is, is there a new DNA base pair? Or a new DNA base, I guess you'd say. Well, here's a quick story from this month's issue of Nature Chemical Biology. And it has to do with a new type of DNA base that has been found in mice and in all other eukaryotic organisms by implication. You may remember that there are four standard DNA bases, G, T, C, and A, guanine, thymine, cytosine, and adenine. Well, it's been that way for quite a while. But Dr. Martin Bachman of the Cancer Research United Kingdom Cambridge Institute is proposing a new semi-permanent base that may be found in genomes in addition to the other four. An epigenetic marker known as 5-formal cytosine may be more than just a transitory chemical state it may actually help to regulate gene expression. Bachman says that formal cytosine is stable in the mouse genome and may represent a fifth nucleotide of the DNA alphabet. He says, quote, It had been thought this modification was solely a short-term 
intermediate. But the fact that we've demonstrated it can be stable in living tissue shows that it could regulate gene expression and potentially signal other events in cells, unquote. While the function of this modified base, which essentially is a methylated cytosine with an extra oxygen, it remains kind of unclear. Its position within the genome points to a a role in gene expression, but what that is is not, not understood. Bachman believes that the chemical modification to DNA is found in very specific positions in the genome, the places which regulate genes. And his group has found that alteration in every tissue in the mouse's body, albeit at very low levels. Bachman found the altered base to be most common in the mouse brain, but even there, it's only present at about 10 parts per million or less. But when the researchers enriched cultures of mouse cells or mouse diets with stable isotopes of carbon and hydrogen, they found no uptake into these particular bases, these formal cytosine bases, and that suggested that the modification is stable. Bachman concludes, quote, If formal cytosine is present in the DNA of all tissues, it's probably there for a reason. This will alter the thinking of people in the study of development and the role that these modifications may play in the development of certain diseases, unquote. And the next story. I was kidding about those Neanderthals. But you know what? Neanderthals really got around quite a bit. If you remember that movie Superbad, there was a character who called himself McLovin. Well, McLovin seemed to originate about 30,000 years ago, and he seemed to be a Neanderthal. It turns out there was a lot more interbreeding between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens 35 to 45,000 years ago than anyone would have guessed previously. Around the same time, Neanderthals disappeared from the landscape, but not before interbreeding with Homo sapiens. Recent research published this June in the journal Nature by Dr. David Reich of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard has revealed that all non-Africans living today retain a genetic trace, 1-3% to of the genome of Neanderthal ancestry. And about 40,000 years ago, human genomes would have contained maybe twice as much Neanderthal DNA. So if you are from Europe, well, or Asia, or anywhere from anywhere except Africa, essentially, you have 1 to 3% of your genome thanks to Neanderthals. Genetic material recovered from 40,000-year-old human bones unearthed in Romania harbor about 6 to 9% Neanderthal DNA, the study reports. Some of the DNA was contained in three relatively large chromosome segments, suggesting the individual had a Neanderthal ancestor a relatively short time before, only four to six generations back, which means, what, uh, 80 to 120 years previous, which isn't that long previous. Reich and his colleagues sequenced DNA from the jawbone of a skeleton found in Romania in 2002. The remains of the skeleton retained gross morphological features that suggested it was a human-Neanderthal mix. So Reich decided to plumb the genome for such a relationship. Although contaminated with exogenous DNA, that's DNA from the outside from other sources, the jawbone yielded DNA that the researchers processed in order to isolate and analyze endogenous genetic material. That's material from the organism itself, in this case, the Neanderthal human mix. The key to isolating out the individual's own genetic material involved bioinformatic techniques that separated out contaminating DNA. 
They were able to use recent approaches to identify endogenous parts of the genome. In addition to finding the chromosomal segments that suggested a recent mating event between modern humans and Neanderthals, Reich and his colleagues found genomic evidence of an earlier hybridization that likely occurred between the two species. This isn't the first time researchers have identified a human-Neanderthal hybrid. Previously, researchers had found evidence of an older mixture event, which occurred in the Near East in what is modern-day Israel. The new results suggest that Neanderthals and modern humans mixed in modern-day Europe. Reich says, quote, What's exciting about this is that it is evidence that Neanderthal mixture occurred in Europe as well. What seems to have happened is that modern humans moved through Neanderthal territory and mixed with them multiple times through that span, unquote. I love work like this because it's like a genetic time machine. We may not be able to physically go back in time ever, but I think it's so amazing that we can do these types of analyses to tell who was mating with whom more than 30,000 years ago. All right, onwards and upwards. If you could predict when you were going to die, would you want to know? Frankly, I'm not really sure I'd be interested. I mean, I have a good idea because of how my parents and other relatives are surviving the ravages of time, but I have no delusions of being Lazarus Long. I will be very, very lucky to make it to 100, even with the future's promise of amazing medical breakthroughs. I'm more interested in what my quality of life will be in the next 50 years if I survive that long without getting hit by a truck or eaten by zombies. How healthy will I be if I actually make it that long? However, I know there are others of you out there who would love an approximate prediction of death by old age. Well, for you, Dr. Ian Deary of University of Edinburgh may have an answer in this month's issue of Genome Biology. With the exception of mutations caused by outside sources, genome sequences, well, they pretty much remain constant throughout your life. Yet, how those genomes are regulated does change over time and in response to the environment. DNA methylation is one way a cell can significantly alter gene expression in living organisms. Methylation patterns vary across the lifespan. I've talked about methylation before. And the methylation the addition of these little carbons, it changes with development and age. And studies have also shown that lifestyle choices and uh, environment can alter these patterns. Jerry's research shows that methylation patterns can actually predict mortality. He states, quote, This new research increases our understanding of longevity and healthy aging. It is exciting as it has identified a novel indicator of aging which improves the prediction of lifespan over and above the contribution of factors such as smoking, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease, unquote. Because age-related changes in DNA methylation are well-documented, researchers have developed ways to calculate a person's biological age from the methylation pattern. And in the new study, the authors used the comparison between age as predicted by methylation pattern in blood an actual age of nearly 5,000 older people in four large studies spanning 14 years. Using one model, they found a 21% greater mortality risk in individuals whose predicted age based on DNA methylation pattern was greater than five years older than their chronological age. 
This relationship held true even after the researchers accounted for the potentially confounding influences of smoking, education, childhood IQ, social class, cardiovascular diseases, high blood pressure, diabetes. The study concluded that DNA methylation predicted age is an epigenetic clock that measures biological age and runs alongside it, but not always in parallel with chronological age, and it may inform life expectancy predictions. The author tested several variants to determine what could lead to fast-running epigenetic clocks, but found only that women had significantly lower differences between their actual age and age predicted by methylation pattern. Factors such as education and health didn't really show any influence. Deary finished with, quote, At present, it's not clear what lifestyle or genetic factors influence a person's biological age. We have several follow-up projects planned to investigate this in detail, unquote. Next story. Well, we've had our Star Trek-type communicators now for the last 15 or 20 years. Cell phones are now so ubiquitous that we barely even consider their futuristic nature and how they can keep us easily in contact over thousands and thousands of miles. But what about other Star Trek gadgets? Are there hand phasers on the horizon? Anabolic protoplasers? Warp drives? Well, no to most of that. But the tricorder is a bit closer to coming into actual existence. The journal Emerging Infectious Diseases in June had a report from Dr. Dmitry Lopotko of Rice University about a new handheld device that can electronically scan for malaria without touching the patient. The device is a laser scanner that can give an accurate diagnosis in seconds without breaking the skin, just like the fictional tricorder in Star Trek. It works by pulsing energy into a vein in the person's wrist or earlobe. The laser's wavelength doesn't harm the human tissue, but it's absorbed by a chemical called hemozoin. Hemozoin are waste crystals that are produced by the malaria parasite Plasmodium falciparum when it feeds on human blood. When the crystals absorb this energy, they warm the surrounding blood plasma and make it bubble. An oscilloscope placed on the skin alongside the laser senses these nanoscale bubbles when they start popping, detecting malaria infections in less than 20 seconds. Lepotko says, quote, This is the first true non-invasive diagnostic for malaria. We even managed to use the device to show whether dead mosquitoes were carrying the parasite or not, unquote. Malaria threatens about half the world's population, and it kills about half a million people a year. It killed almost 600,000 people in 2013. Existing tests for malaria are already pretty quick, but they still take 15 to 20 minutes to give a diagnosis. And if you've got hundreds of people to test, well, that could take a while. Uh, Blood has to be taken. The test has to be conducted by trade personnel to get reliable results. Extra chemical reagents have to be used. So not only does it take 15 to 20 minutes extra, it also is much more costly. Lepotko says, quote, A single battery-powered device the size of a shoebox will house everything associated with the small probe, with no other reagents, facilities, or specialist personnel required. We estimate that a single unit would cost about $15,000, but that one unit could test 200,000 people, potentially bringing the per-person cost of testing from $0.50 to under $0.08, unquote. 
Lepako also says that further tweaks are needed to his malarial tricorder before the probe can become a mainstream diagnostic. For example, it gives a more ambiguous result if a patient has dark skin. Yeah, that's a big thing that you have to fix. Just a bit of a potential pitfall when most of the children who you're going to be testing in Africa account for a majority of malarial deaths, and they all have dark skin. But Lopatko says that he's pretty confident that skin color problem can be overcome by simply switching to a different wavelength of laser. So here is a story from the July issue of the journal The Scientist. I always like to report on scientific misconduct stories, but you will notice that you almost never see, whenever I talk about these things, you almost never see serious punishment on these nitwits who made up their data. This story is a bit different. A former Iowa State University scientist who pled guilty to felony counts of research misconduct earlier this year for adding human antibodies to blood from rabbits to make an HIV vaccine appear more effective than it actually was, he's going to jail. Dr. Dong Pyu Han, who was forced to resign from Iowa State in 2013 after that fraud was discovered, is going to be serving 57 months in prison. And he's going to have to repay $7.2 million to the National Institute of Health. Yes, they were the ones who funded his research, and that's how big his grant was. And by the way, I have never come within $7 million of getting a $7 million grant. Anyway, Han said when he was sentenced July 1st, quote, I deeply regret any and all misconduct. I meant no harm to anyone, unquote. Stiff sentences like these are pretty rare, as I just said, and the guilty parties are usually just subject to fines and prohibitions from receiving further federal research funding. But there have been a handful of instances where the frauds were given jail time for their action, and this is one of them. His misconduct attracted attention last year when Senator Charles Grassley and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Des Moines took the case to a grand jury. And Hahn resigned from Iowa State in 2013 after the fraud was uncovered. Dr. David Wright, former director of the Office of Research Integrity, ORI, which investigates cases of research misconduct among NIH grantees, he told the scientists that the wider benefit of Hahn's punishment is unclear. Quote, it's questionable how much more is to be gained by jail time. Penalties are normally meted out by the Office of Research Integrity. Being barred from receiving federal funding is usually sufficient to ruin a fraudulent researcher's career, unquote. So can it get any worse with this schmuck? Yeah, it can always get worse. Although owing the U.S. government $7 million when you are now despised and unemployable is pretty bad. But yeah, it's worse. According to the story, U.S. District Judge James Gritzner, who presided over Han's sentencing, mentioned that Han would likely be deported to his native South Korea after serving his jail time in the U.S. Dr. Han, I hope you have a very rich, very senile uncle in Korea who likes you an awful lot. Next story. Moose spit? Good? Yes, good. Okay. Here is some sticky research that came out of York University, and it shows a surprisingly effective way to fight against a certain species of toxic grass fungus. Moose saliva. 
Published in this July's Biology Letters by Dr. Dawn Bazaley, the paper shows that moose and reindeer saliva, when applied to red fescue grass, which hosts a fungus called Epicloa fescue that produces the toxin ergovalin. It results in slower fungal growth and less toxicity. Bazaley says, quote, Plants have evolved defense mechanisms to protect themselves, such as thorns, bitter-tasting berries, and in the case of certain types of grass, by harboring toxic fungus deep within them that can be dangerous or even fatal for grazing animals. We wanted to find out how moose were able to eat such large quantities of this grass without negative effects, unquote. Inspired by an earlier study that showed that moose grazing and saliva distribution can have a positive effect on plant growth, the research team set out to test an interesting hypothesis, whether moose saliva can actually detoxify the grass before it's eaten. Working in partnership with the Toronto Zoo, the team collected saliva samples from moose and reindeer, which they then smeared onto clip samples of red fescue grass carrying the toxic fungus. They then found that the application of the saliva produced rapid results and inhibited fungal growth within 12 to 36 hours. Bazaley says, quote, We found that the saliva worked very quickly in slowing the growth of the fungus and the fungal colonies. In addition, by applying multiple applications of saliva to the grass over the course of two months, we found we could lower the toxic ergovalane between 41 to 70 percent, unquote. Bazaley concludes with, Quote, we know that animals can remember if certain plants have made them feel ill and they may avoid those plants in the future. This study is the first evidence to our knowledge of herbivore saliva being shown to fight back and slow down the growth of fungus. Because moose tend to graze within a defined home range, it's possible that certain groups of plants are receiving repeated exposure of moose saliva, which over time has resulted in fewer toxins within their preferred area, unquote. Last story of the night is another one of those forensic crime-related stories. I read it in the June issue of the Journal of Scientist. I think two months ago I mentioned a story about extracting DNA from fingerprints to help identify an evildoer. Well, a company called Parabon Nanolabs has actually gone one step further than just extracting DNA from fingerprints. They have entered scary SF territory. How scary? Well, according to Parabon Nanolabs, the DNA left behind at a crime scene may help give some idea of what suspects look like. And they are commercializing that process. Parabon has developed a process that actually predicts the appearance of a person's face based on his or her genetic sequence. Stephen Armitrout, the founder and CEO of Parabon, says, quote, A sketch artist uses information pulled from an eyewitness to create a sketch. Well, our algorithms are doing the same thing with a genetic witness, with that DNA that was left at the crime scene to create a sketch, unquote. I was more than a little doubtful when I read Armand Trout's statement. It just doesn't seem very likely. I mean, I could see how you could predict certain traits, but how do you predict no shape or no size or ears or eyebrow placement or cheeks? I, I can go on and on like this. Well, apparently NBC News, who reported on the company, was just as doubtful as me. They put the analytic system of Parabon to the test and sent them a water bottle from reporter Kate Snow. And according to the article I read, the resulting sketch they got from her DNA does not resemble her facial features at all. However, it got her hair color and complexion right. 
which is exactly what I would have suspected would have happened. According to a press release from Parabon, police are currently using the technology for, quote, lead generation, narrowing suspect lists, and identifying unknown remains, unquote. In one such case, Parabon provided a sketch to law enforcement of a white man with dark hair and light eyes connected to the 1988 murder of a child. Armentrout says, quote, In this tragic case, and many like it, we aim to bring renewed hope to the families and friends of crime victims that their loved ones will get the justice they deserve, unquote. Although I remain leery of the technology, I certainly wish him and his company lots of luck. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Keep snoring to scare away the predators. Be honest if you accept $7 million for NIH. Keep moose saliva in your medicine cabinet. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. It's funny, um, honestly, my kind of days are all kind of mixed up. You know, I work shifts in different times, and I only kind of know it's the end of the month, honestly, when it kind of Jim's e- email comes in with the kind of show attached. I think, right, oh, we're there now. You know what I mean? I, kind of, I haven't got a <laughs> so flyby. But Jim keeps us on a straight and narrow. That kind of email bounces in at the end of the week, end of the month, every time. And it just kind of it writes us, it just centers us. So the main fiction is dominated by Yerk Davison. I'll give you a little heads up. This story was originally published in the Time Traveller's Almanac, edited by Anne and Jeff Vandermeer, and it is a amazing book that I got on Kindle. And it's just, do you know what I mean? If you like time travel, man, that's, you've got to, you've got to get that. There's just so much in. And it's one of them books where you can kind of just dip in, Read a couple, forget it, and then realize you've still got a kind of mountain of time travel stories in there. And, you know, they're picked by Anne and Jeff Vandermeer, and they kind of, I was reading, I think it was on the blog or somewhere where they kind of, you know, the kind of process they go through to kind of get these stories, you know what I mean? And the blood, sweat, and tears, they can just to choose these stories. And like I say, they have just picked some. Fantastic time travel story. Just amazing. Do you know what I mean? Hats off to them. So it was originally published in there. Yerk Davison is a freelance writer. He has written short stories, essays, reviews, and screenplays. He has been shortlisted for and won a number of awards. PS Publishing published his collection, The Library of Forgotten Books, in 2010. His novella, Unwrapped Sky, was published by Tor in April 2014. And Sci-Fi Now claims... It can go toe-to-toe with China Marvel's best. Kirkus Review calls impressively imagined and densely detailed. Newton Review books say it's one volume what you cannot ignore. His novel, The Stars Askew, will be out in October 2015, and his screenplay, The Uncertain Principle, co-written by with Ben Kessel, is currently in development. Yerk can be found at yerk.com and tweets at Yerk Davison. This story is narrated by Krista Syrota. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Domine, our jerk Davidson. I'm off the monorail and through streets littered with cigarette packets and strips of last month's posters, peeled from the yellow and grey chipped walls. The air smells of rubbish and urine. 
A breeze would only blow the odor away for a moment. I'm in the city. Janie and I moved into the place temporarily, with the hope of shifting further out a few months later, where there might be a park for Max to play in, neighbors to help out, a house with a separate dining room and kitchen. Jeannie remained after I moved out, so every now and then I'm back in the old neighborhood, with light rain misting through the little inner-city streets, trying not to look past the pavement in front of me in case I see one of the real things that happen here. A shuttle slashes the sky overhead, taking someone rich to meet other rich people somewhere else. They don't bother with traveling by land. Easier to skip over the city like a stone over water. The deep red of the shuttle's burners gives the illusion of warmth. Hey, mister, hey! One of the boys, there are a million around here. Hey, mister, bliss, bliss! I shake my head and keep my eyes on the stained pavement. No need to encourage them. Hey, mister, you come back! I'm there at the old five-story yellow apartment building. Bars on every window so people don't get in and others don't throw themselves out. It's a fair balance. The city is still all stairs and four, five, six-story buildings. Everything new or important happens out in the towers, little islands of commerce in the suburbs where things are clean and fresh and everyone's teeth are white and gleaming and the girls in all the shops remind you of your hopes when you were young. I'm into the stairwell and up. Three sets of stairs, four doors along the walkway. I knock. I hear scrabbling from behind the door and wait for a while, noticing that my hands seem wrinkled. I'm only 38, but I'm getting old. Don't you ever call? I can see one side of Jeannie's face through the partly open door, her lank, colorless hair falling across her forehead. She has that look of exhaustion, as usual, as if the world has worn her out and everything now is an effort. Hi, Jeannie. Look, it's not a good time. I brought something for Max. The door opens and I'm inside. The place is tiny. One bedroom, a one-room lounge and kitchen, a bathroom and toilet. He doesn't even know who you are. Jeannie starts picking up odd bits and pieces of junk from the lounge room floor. Some socks, a fluffy toy bird, open envelopes with their contents still inside. She always starts cleaning when I arrive. Max is playing by a water-filled bucket in the corner. The smell of something rotten floats from the bin in the kitchen. Hey. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Maxie, I say, and my one-year-old son looks up at me, his face round with splotchy, rosy cheeks and his mouth open. A line of dribble runs from his mouth to his chest. I walk over to him and squat next to him. Hey, Maxie, should I reach out to him? I'm not sure. It's hard with children. There's strange things. He looks at me and I'm scared he'll start crying. At the moment, he's just frowning. So what did you bring him? I have no present, so I changed the subject. Danny's coming back, you know, I say. Really soon. August 30th. I know the date, Merrick, but I don't care. It's too late for me to care, Janie says. You should concentrate on your own stuff. Think about Max for once. But what am I going to do? I reach forward and touch Max on the arm, but he senses my tension and tries to pull away, still frowning at me as if I'm an imposter. A key rattles in the door and a big brawny man, his body too big for his legs, wanders in. He wears baggy khaki work shorts and a blue singlet over a two-tanned body. I told you this was a bad time, Jeannie says to me. Oh, well, this is Rick. Rick, this is Merrick. Oh, hi, Rick says and walks over to Jeannie, gives her a kiss, walks over to Max, ruffles his thin blonde hair. I'm out of the door and on the landing, but Jeannie follows me. I love him, she says, and he treats me well, better than you ever did. Yeah, I say, still walking, my teeth clenched like a vice. What did you come back for? Her voice is suddenly shrill. Did you come back to fuck me? Another shuttle burns overhead, and I wonder where it's going. The towers, no doubt. Come back and visit Max, though, she says suddenly, hopefully. He needs his father. You of all people should know that. Later that evening, I'm in the small unit of Ford, out in the vast expanse of houses and apartments that encircle the towers. The suburbs are like a sea surrounding a chain of islands running all the way to the city. It's a nothing space, each section interchangeable with another. The view from a shuttle would be one of infinitely repeating series of buildings and roads. It's how I like it. You can get lost here. You can feel hidden and safe. It allows me to write my music in peace, away from all the demands of the world, partners and children and work. Still, I don't compose much. All my creativity gets drained by the soundscapes I'm forced to design for the towers. All my originality is sucked away into those. Tonight, for some reason, I'm agitated, disturbed even. It's August 28th. The phone buzzes. I press the button and my older sister Layla appears on the screen. Though she doesn't really like me, we keep in touch. Even now her hair is sculpted like a blonde helmet. 
not a hair out of place. I can't sleep, she says. Yeah. I don't want to see Danny. Right. I don't want anything to do with him. Layla clenches her jaw. We both inherited that from Mum, and crosses her arms emphatically. Do you think that Mum was happy in her last years? Christ, Merrick, you've always been introspective. That's your problem. I think she was. I think finally, after everything, she found some happiness. Layla brushes her hair back with her hand, but it bounces back to its perfect shape. So if you talk to him, tell him I don't want to see him. Someone's got to be there when he comes back. Well, it's not going to be me. And Merrick, what good is it going to do if you show up, huh? She wanted to hold on, didn't she? Just another year, just one more year. But she couldn't. Someone is crying behind Layla. It must be her kid, whose name I can't for the life of me remember. Layla turns from the phone to look over her shoulder, then back. Look, Merrick, I gotta go. It's been all over the news, I say, but she's gone. August 30th arrives, and I'm in MacArthur Tower. The procession has finished. The speeches are over. There have been medals and descriptions and hologram footage and everything else. I saw him on stage with the others in their uniforms, but I could barely make it out from up the back. Now I'm sitting at the exit to the conference center, and people in suits are milling about being official, and I wonder if I should go in and look around for him. No, I stay put. Secretly, I don't want to see him. I think of leaving, eyeing the lifts far away down the corridor, but something makes me stay. It must have been a hell of a thing, after all, out there, in space. The government made a fuss of Danny and the rest of the crew, that's for sure. A soundscape full of triumphant brass and rolling drums plays in the background. I notice the captain walk out, officials surrounding him, talking in hushed, respectful tones. To my right, windows open out to the evening. The vast bulk of another tower stands opposite, its own windows appearing tiny in the gigantic structure. I struggle to see if I can make out figures, but all I can see is flickering, and that's probably just my eyes playing up. I look away, and suddenly Danny's there with another of the crew, and they're coming past me. It hits me like a physical blow. He looks in his early twenties. His light hair is short and jagged, his eyes slightly too close together, spoiling his otherwise beautiful looks. It hits me again. He looks just like I once did. See you soon then, Dan, the other one says. He nods and grins like a little boy runs his hands through his hair, and then says, Yep. He walks toward the lift as the other one turns back. Hey, I say weakly, and then stronger, embarrassed by the strain in my voice. Danny. He turns and looks at me, and my breath is suddenly taken away. He cocks his head and frowns for a minute, then says, Yeah? It's me, I say, and I'm struck by the banality of it. Merrick. He grins uncomfortably, cocks his head to the other side and raises his hands as if to say, well, imagine that. I stand up from my chair, take a few steps and say again, it's me, Merrick.
where's your mother? She died. A look of confusion crosses his face and then passes. Well, come on then, he says. I follow him. Neither of us speak as we make our way to the elevator and then wind through one of the prospects, a wide boulevard with ground cars and unicycles zipping along in a chaotic frenzy. The stall holders at the side of the road with their designer tattoos calling to us as we pass. Another elevator, spiraling through the tower in odd directions, takes us up to the hotel sector in the 1500s where Danny has been given a room. He has an amazing sense of direction amid the massive structure of the tower, with its thousands of winding corridors. He finds his penthouse calmly and easily. When he arrives, he says to me, the first words in some time, I'm going to get ready. I have to see some of this. He retreats to the bathroom while I sit and wait. The view from the giant windows is magnificent. Two towers, one at an oblique angle, and then the lights of the suburbs, flickering like a thousand shining insects. The clarity of it strikes me. We don't wear makeup much anymore, I say. Oh, what do you wear? I don't really know. I mean, I'm not really up with it. But there's a fashion channel. Danny comes out, fully shaven. He looks even younger, though the dark makeup around the eyes makes him look like a 30-year throwback. Should I take it off? He looks suddenly anxious. No, don't worry. Some people still wear it. I've got this card, he says. They gave me this card. It'll get me clothes, all sorts of things. Layla called me a couple of days ago. He walks across the room, presses a button, and the fridge door slides up. Drink? he asks, ignoring me. She's doing well. All settled down. Husband, kids, you know. Danny takes a big swig of something, throws back his head, and lets out a roar. Turns around, passes me a glass. Come on, boy, this'll put a glint back in your eye. He grins his distinctive grin. I sip the drink and try to stifle a cough. My throat is on fire. My eyes blurred. I hear a laugh off in the distance. God, I say. Nightville, up in the 18 and 1900s, is a complex of Middle Eastern and African restaurants. Hanging gardens filled with the scent of stone fruit and dotted with indoor lakes. Labyrinthine clubs climbing up through the tower like ant colonies so that after a few hours, you don't know what level you're on. Nightville is a carefully planned planlessness, designed to give the sense of spontaneity, of a vast and sprawling confusion, imitating the red light districts in the old cities. But nothing in the towers is unplanned, so there's always the element of irreality to it, a sense of the manufactured. Shambling through a club one might, lo and behold, stumble upon an Armenian restaurant run by the club's owners, aimed at the very same patrons, in an expression of monopoly apparent only to those not doped up on rapture or blurred by alcohol. Nightville is one big franchise. We're in Arabian Nights, one of the popular clubs in the sector, a ramshackle series of levels where patrons surround hookahs in dark, tent-like chambers, where everything is in the deep colors and intricate patterns of the Middle East, where belly dancers and pipe players tootling in exotic quarter tones, make their way through the passageways where camel trains, ridden by adventurers, head for the mini-desert on the western side of the club. Danny, 
dressed ridiculously in his spacesuit and dark makeup, all blue shadow and gray undertones, is entertaining a small crowd in a side room. I've been edged out of the circle and have to crane my neck over a couple of skip girls. Of course, he says, you're unconscious during close to light speed. A deep, dark sleep filled with magnificent dreams. And then, suddenly, consciousness hits you like a blow, and you're throwing up all over yourself, and you're wondering who you are and what you're doing there. And me, I'm thinking, I could have bought this feeling for a hundred bucks at Arabian Nights. He pauses for the laughter, and then continues in slightly more hushed tones. But then you look out, and you see Centauri, and everything is in a strange new light, filled with blues and greens that you've never seen before, as if you've been reborn into a world just slightly different from this one, and you know nothing will ever be the same again. Around him there is hushed silence, only the bass from dance music in the main rooms audible behind his voice. One of the skip girls puts her hand on his thigh. Hey, he says to me, come here. He pulls me toward him and wraps an arm around my shoulder. I want you to meet Merrick. You have to look after him. Someone passes me a fluorescent blue drink, autumn and ice, and I down it in one hit. He continues to tell his stories, but his arm is around my neck and I keep thinking to myself, isn't this what you came for? Isn't time with Danny what you wanted? The Ottoman ice has rapture in it, and before long everything has that tinge of silver, those floating motes of light dancing around the room like emblems of joy. I have another, and the waves of heat begin to course up and down my body. Are you his brother? You look just like him, one of the skip girls asks me. They're not that quick, skip girls. What's your name? I say. Sandy? All the skip girls have names like that. Sandy, Cherry, Pita, Ruby. Her lips are full and red, and suddenly her little cherubic face sets off some reaction in my stomach. Skip girls, I think, are gorgeous. The Ottoman ice no longer burns in my throat. Now it's just a soft warmth, as if my throat is adjusting itself to the heat emanating from my body. Through a window on my left, the mini-desert stretches out, and in the distance, I can see a little oasis. Can you see that, I say? But there's no one beside me. Everyone is at a table about ten feet away. When did we arrive at the observation deck, I wonder? I join them at the table. Danny is still entertaining. He's charismatic, just as I imagined. And there, on the asteroid, he says, was what looked like a complex machine or engine. Too structured to be natural, I swear. But how much fuel did we have? Who knew? Let's go down, I said. I mean, here we were, how many light years from home? And there, within arm's reach, is evidence of alien civilization. Let's go, I said. Take it now, seize our chance. No, said the captain. Yes, said I. No, he said. When else will we get this chance, I said. We can't risk it, said the captain. So that was that. He grins his childlike grin. Breaths of amazement. I look out over the desert again, not believing a word of it. And suddenly we're in the Turkish steam baths, and soaking everything up, and my body is on fire. All I can do is lie there, head back as the steam invades my body, and I feel like I'm somehow dissolving and becoming the water. And the water is me, 
and I'm suddenly aware of Danny above me leaning down, and he says, Look, I'm sorry, okay? I'm sorry. He touches my shoulder and then walks off quickly, and Sandy is looking at me from the sofa as I look over to the towers from Danny's penthouse while Christy and Danny are in the bedroom next door. You skip, girls, I say. You're so full of life. I notice her lips again, and this time the freckles on her little round cheeks. She must be in her early twenties, like most skip girls employed to advertise the tower to give it a sense of glamour and sex. She looks out over the city and yawns. Do you and Christy work tandem? She ignores me and walks to the window. She looks across at the opposite tower. It's amazing, isn't it? That over there, there's a whole nother city. And that people don't ever have to leave if they don't want to. A whole world. I walk up behind her, and there are little muscles outlined just so on her back. Perfect, as if sculpted from marble. I've been to all of them, I say. Every tower. Wow. From the bedroom, I can hear a high-pitched whining. And then I think I hear Christy say, Oh, yes, that! Each one has my own little mark, I say. Soundscape design. I'm part of the soundscape design team. Really? Her eyes flicker with interest for a moment. Well, you know, part of the team. I'm looking down at her and I have an urge to lean forward and touch her hair. Metallic green and artificial. A typical mark of a skip girl. I'll be back in a minute, she says, and she walks swiftly across to the bedroom and is gone. I wait for five minutes and then let myself out. The next day, I spend at home, occasionally staring at my computers and synths, turning them on, pretending I'm going to compose. But it's too hard, and my head feels like it's been squeezed like a lemon. Oh no, I think. I'm getting old. Once I would have been fine on a day like today, but now my body has perfected the art of sabotage. I wander around distracted, moving from thing to thing, unable to settle. The synths sit in the corner of the room accusingly. In the afternoon, the phone rings, and I shuffle toward it, press the button. So, what's he like? I can see Layla leaning forward, so she can see my expression more clearly on the screen. I don't know. Oh, come on, what's he like? He's a great storyteller, I guess. I mean, he had a fan club all around. You know, charismatic, I guess. Kept everyone mesmerized. I think of Sandy the Skip Girl and her full lips, her cherubic face, her metallic hair. Some feeling washes over me that I prefer not to acknowledge. Is he immature? I bet he's immature. I don't know. Christ, Merrick, listen to you. It's always the same with you. You're still under his spell. I guess he's young. He must be. He left when he was young. It's like looking at me only 15 years ago. Really, like looking back in time. I am, you know, older than him. Yeah, the bastard. Layla spits the words with satisfaction. He's okay. You were too young when you left. I was, what, eight? You, though, you were too young. That's your problem. That's why you can't see. 
He used to play with us, though, remember? He used to build things with us. Little ships that flew through the air, orbited that old planet we had hanging in our room. Remember that? Layla grimaces a moment. He hit Mum. Remember that? He hit Mum. She loved him. She waited for him all her life. You're both as bad as each other. Both of you. Look where it got her, Merrick. You're the one calling to find out. Fine. Listen, I gotta go. Why don't you come over for dinner? But I'm off the phone, and I put Mozart on with the volume up. I close my eyes and lean back in the chair as the chorus comes in. Requiem eternum dona ice. Domine et lux perpetua luceat ice. I meet Danny again the following week up in the towers. His makeup is gone. He's in the latest fashion, as far as I can tell. All straight, sharp lines and black, of course. It's always black. Have you seen this holographic porn? He asks. It's amazing, really. I mean, God. I lean from one foot to the other, wondering what to say. God, he says. Some of those girls, some of those positions. He shakes his head. To change the subject, I say, Remember we used to play with little ships that flew around a toy planet? He cocks his head. Do you still have those? I nod. Christ, I love those little things, he says. You can come to my place and see them if you want. No, I can't. I've got to get ready. What for? We're going back. Back? The machine. We're supposed to examine the alien machine. But there is no machine, I say, calling his bluff. He shakes his head for a second, then adds, No, you're right, there isn't. He walks into the bedroom, and I am left shifting my balance from foot to foot. Then he's back again. Here, I have something for you. I brought it back for her, but now I want you to have it. It's from Centauri. He leans over and passes me a piece of strange, black, swirling rock attached to a chain, alien and beautiful. She died of cancer, you know. Even now, cancer takes people. I hold the rock in my hand, and now I want to cry again, but in a different way. I want to reach out to him. Want to go to a strip show? Um, I don't know. I know. I know just the place. Baths. That's one thing you miss in space. Real water to float in. Come on. So I follow him to the elevator, and we rise. Past the 1800s, 1900s, and then at 2200, we're off the elevator and into the cavernous deck of the shuttle port. Shuttles taxi around like strange beetles threatening to burst into flight at any moment. Others line a far wall at an angle. What are we doing? We're going to Holson's Tower north. By shuttle? Yep. There is a line of taxis along the walkway, and Danny presses a button. There's a quick sound as the pressurized door opens, and we hop in. The shuttle is a lot smaller on the inside than I imagined. Only one long seat facing forward, a series of panels across the back of the seat in front. A glass window so we can see the driver, who has great rolls of fat at the back of his head and neck. The taxi shuttles across the tarmac, turns left, and I can see the runway, which opens out into the clear blue of the sky.
We sit for a moment, and another shuttle emerges slightly in front of us, lines itself up with the runway, stops for a minute, and then suddenly its burners are deep red. The air behind it shimmers, and it is gone. Our taxi starts to shudder, and I take a gasp of breath. Surely we're not going to be able to fly. We'll get to the end of the runway and plummet to our deaths. This taxi, I realize, will crash. This is the one, the one out of a million that will break down in mid-flight, lose power, send us to our deaths. The unbelievable shuddering as we power along the runway confirms this, and I close my eyes. Suddenly, the shuddering stops, and I open them again, afraid of what I might see. And sure enough, beneath us, the great metropolis lies like a model of itself. I gasp. Good God, there's nothing holding us up. You can let go of my hand now, Danny laughs. This is the first time I've flown. It's all right. It'll be all right. He gives my hand a squeeze, and I feel calmer. Look, he says. Look at the city off there in the distance. Isn't it beautiful? Like a ruined civilization. The little city does look like an ancient ruin, as if it has been through a storm that left some of the weaker buildings as rubble, or just a few walls surrounding a mess, while others it's stripped of their outer layer, leaving their mottled undercoats visible. I have a son down there. Really? What's his name? Max. You didn't want to give him a Czech name? Keep your mother's tradition? No, we're not Czechs anymore. Would you like to meet him? He sits in silence for a while and then says, You know, I think I would. Before long, we're north of the city and then into another tower and the flight is over. Down in the 1100s is Japantown and I find myself lying in a steaming bath. A sparse garden surrounding me and a pot of green tea just out of arm's reach, so I have to lift myself out of the bath to pour it. The roof is camouflaged and gives the impression of being sky. Thankfully, there is no view of the city whatsoever. There are no sounds at all. Just silence. The Japanese really know how to do it. The silence is funny, I say. The towers are almost all soundscaped. Really? Yep, that's what I do, soundscaping. I see. Yeah, wanted to be a musician, but you know, soundscaping's a good job. Keeps me afloat. So you compromised? No, I just, you know, you have to be realistic. Christ, Merrick. What's so fucking bad about that? That sort of realism isn't for me. I pull myself out of the bath to pour more tea and wonder, annoyed... Why didn't I pull the pot closer last time? We sit in silence for quite a while, and I don't know, perhaps it's the silence, or the beauty of the garden, or the heat of the bath, but suddenly I begin to cry. Hey, buddy, what's wrong? I don't say anything for a while, and then manage to get out between the sobs. I've made some terrible mistakes in my life, Dad. I've made some bad mistakes. Layla lives at the crest of a hill, and her husband, George, is a fitness fanatic with a shaven head. George invested in the towers, or his parents did, and now they live in a mansion overlooking the Aqua Sea. They have two boats and three cars and a swimming pool in a basement underneath their house. The sea, George always says, is for looking at, not swimming in. At those times, I want to break his teeth, 
but I always nod and smile and say, hey, who would swim in the sea nowadays? I mean, with all that pollution. George works out and has huge muscles. He and Layla have one child, about three years old, whose name I can't remember. George and Layla have everything. The dinner is tiny and served on gigantic white plates. A piece of unidentified meat with two red slivers of what I'd take to be capsicum on one side. A work of art, I say. Don't be rude, says Layla. He's not, says George. He said it was a work of art. A pure work of art, I say, to annoy Layla. The kid starts crying at the end of the table. Here, sweetie, says Layla, and she reaches over to give him a drink. He keeps crying. Listen to him, says George. I am, I say. All day, says George. Oh, shut up, says Layla. What's his name, I say. But Layla continues at George. Like you'd know, I'm the one here all bloody day. What's his name? Layla turns to me. Families, she says. Take a lot of energy. You'll know... But I cut her off. That's because you had him when you were too old. She looks as if she's been slapped, and I turn to my meal with satisfaction. A moment later, she says to me, So did you. You had Max too old. Now it's my turn to look shocked. No matter how hard I try, I know I look crestfallen. I look back to Layla, and she meets my eye. The side of her mouth twitches, and suddenly we're both laughing at ourselves. You really should meet up with Danny, you know, I say. I can't. I just can't. I reach over and place my hand over hers. You should face him. You know, say what should be said. Is that what you're going to do? Yes. I think so. Yes. Before Mum died, she looked an impossible color a kind of composite grey-orange. She was swollen, but in her inimitable way acted as if it was all some kind of joke. Look at me, she said. I'm a fish from the deep sea. And she opened and closed her mouth, and we all laughed. I want to tell Danny something about Mum now, as we head to the city, but some part of me holds back. I know, somehow, that he's not equipped to cope with it. He is, after all, in his early twenties. He's young, I tell myself. A minute later and we're off the monorail together. Danny turns to me and says, Jesus, look at this place. What have they done to the city? I keep my eyes focused on the refuse. Empty packages, indeterminate plastic things, toilet paper. But Danny, of course, doesn't know about the street sellers and suddenly there are three kids around us. Bliss, bliss! It's not really bliss, though, is it? Danny says. It is, swear, brother, purest I ever had myself. Look, mister, look at me eyes. You can get your eyes wide like that with all sorts of poisons, says Danny, enjoying the debate. When we arrive at the building, I turn to the kid and say, Okay, you can fuck off now. Aw, mister, it's good stuff, one of the little kids says, but they leave us alone as we scale the stairs. Three sets of stairs, four doors along the walkway. I knock. Again, there is shuffling behind the door, and then it opens quicker than I expected. Jeannie stands there, disappointment written on her face. Oh, it's you, 
Hi, she says, then notices Danny and quietly adds, as if he's not there. My God, Merrick, he looks just like you when we met. My God, he's so beautiful. Can we come in? She opens the door. Where's Rick? That bastard. Danny sweeps Max up from the corner and says, Hello, grubby chubby. Max grins, revealing a little tooth and letting out another big dribble to join the one connecting his chin and chest. I'm moving out of this place soon, says Jeannie, sweeping back her limp, mousy hair, only to have it fall back across her forehead, another symbol of the world's resistance to her desires. I'm amazed you stayed so long, I say, looking over to Danny and Max, who are playing with a toy that hovers in the air but avoids being caught when you reach out to it. Both have childlike expressions on their faces. Jeannie looks over and says again, quietly, Amazing. I'm thinking of going back and being a musician, I say. Oh, yeah? No, really. Jeannie looks away from Danny and Max to me. God, Merrick, it would have been all right if you'd really wanted to play music, but you always sat in that gray zone your whole life. You didn't really try music. You always held on to it so you wouldn't try anything else. The openings were never there. You have to be lucky. You were never ready, never good enough. You never wanted to work at it. Jesus, Jeannie, you don't understand how hard it is. She reaches over and takes my hand and just looks at me. After a moment, I say, I'll try to come more often. You won't, though. You know you won't. There's nothing else for me to say, standing there looking back and forth at the one real love of my life and the thin blonde hair of my son as he sits comfortably on Danny's lap. Her hand feels soft in mine. On Danny's last day, before he shoots off to Centauri, I arrive at his penthouse, and Christy the skip girl is wandering about topless, with a skirt that sits high enough to show her knickers underneath. Where's that top? She asks no one in particular. Danny is still in the shower, and I can hear the running water above the soft sound of the ocean soundscape, carefully designed for relaxation, but actually infuriating. Relaxation soundscapes make me want to smash something. Here it is! Christy pulls the top out from under a couch, puts it straight on, and then holds her stomach, looking down at it with curiosity. Oh no, I think. Not again. Christy looks over at me, smiles, grabs her bag, and heads for the door. Hey, Christy? She turns. You... My voice trails off with my confidence. Yeah? Oh, it's okay. She waits for a second to see if I have anything else to add, decides I don't, and then lets herself out. A few moments later, Danny comes in, drying his hair with a towel. Turn that fucking sea sound off, would you? He says. It's annoying. I smile, head to the panel, and turn all the soundscapes off. He throws the towel on the floor, sits down, and raises his eyebrows as if to say, Well, there you go. So I hit him with it. So you're going to leave just like that? A look of confusion crosses his face, and he says, Don't. He gets up, walks across to the windows, and looks over to the opposite tower. This place is so strange, he adds, 
I look at him and he looks small and young and out of place. I know now that it's time to let him go. I know who he is. He's Danny. He's my father. I came to say goodbye, I say. Okay, he says, and continues to look out over the mammoth structure with its thousands of floors containing whole social ecosystems, whole worlds even. And beyond that, the suburbs, filled with people who fell short of their aims and now settle in the gray zone of their life, their quiet desperation muffled. And even further beyond that, the tiny speck of the ruined city, the dead heart of things, where lights once flashed and people once gathered before everything slipped off track so subtly so we didn't notice and found ourselves in a world new and strange and hard to bear. That's how I leave him, staring over the geographies of our lives, a man who should have looked older than me, but could have been my own son. He is gone the next day, back out to the stars where he belongs, and a few days after that, as I sit in my chair at home, Mozart's requiem surrounding me and filling me, Lord, grant them eternal rest, the chorus sings, and let the perpetual light shine upon them. I know it's time to call Layla. She is, after all, my sister. When Jeannie opens the door, she says, Oh, it's you. I shrug, as if to say, Well, there you go. Come in, come in. The place is still a mess, but I don't mind. Max is in a high chair and waves his arms around. I stand awkwardly across from Jeannie as she starts picking clothes up from the ground. She always starts cleaning when I arrive. He's gone, I say. I know. I look over at Max, who has now stopped waving his arms and is examining me curiously. I walk over to him, pick him up and sit him on my hip. He stares impassively and I'm afraid he'll cry. Hi, Max, I say quietly, and then turn to Jeannie, hoping that if I act naturally, he'll feel comfortable. Layla, she really should have talked to Danny. Yeah, why didn't she? I thought he was nice and so pretty. Her eyes sparkle mischievously. You'll never guess what happened. What? One of the skip curls that Danny was seeing? I think she's pregnant. No. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I nearly asked her, but it was awkward. Jeannie shakes her head. He'll never change, will he? He's okay, I say. He doesn't really hurt. I stop myself. Max starts to cry and holds his arms out to Jeannie, who laughs. She takes him from me. Safe once more, Max turns and frowns at me. I'm getting used to the frown. Don't worry, says Jeannie. He's like that with everyone. Hey, I say, do you want to hear my new composition? Sure, she says. I got the idea from Mozart. It's sort of a requiem. I walk over to the old computer in the corner of the room. My old computer. I started up, touching its old keys lovingly. Shortly afterward, the piece is playing filling the room with the sound of deep voices and high strings. No complex beats, but a few electronic noises fading in and out. I wanted to keep the classic feel. Jeannie and I sit on the couch together. 
Max on Jeannie's lap, listening as the music fills the room around us. I close my eyes and listen as the voices come in, singing back at the past. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is... Yerk Davison, Yerk, thank you so much. This is just amazing. Generally, everything's going right for you. Wow, go on, sir. Excellent. And Krista, thank you so much. We've had you on the show before, and I just really appreciate it. You know, a lovely narrator. Thank you so much. So that is, that is the show. 395, put to bed, tucked away and put to bed. I hope you enjoyed it. Like you see, I'm harping on about these kind of things. It's just to kind of, you know twofold to be quite honest to get tales to terrify sorted out and get her kind of going and up and running for the kind of the foreseeable future and the light at the end of the tunnel do you know what i mean i'm always going to kind of mention this there now the light at the end of the tunnel do, do i take the jump do i take the leap and get supported by us and just do this you know what i mean do this all the time that would be well oh man you know what i mean fantastic until next week just like to say good night from me Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening.